0: Hey everybody,
1: welcome to Light Freeze, Walking. My name is Pastor David Berge. I'm here with none other than, who are you, sir? I am Michael J.
0: Nelson. How are you, Pastor David? I'm
1: wonderful. J is for Jeffrey.
0: You know, we started recording, and then almost immediately, I had a little sip of water, and I have to do my cough button. So oh, fill, di- I'm gonna hit the my cough, cough button, and then you filled that space. You're
1: very good at coughing while we're recording. I will happily fill that. Okay. <laughs> 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 okay. So See, as you barely know. You couldn't so even. You couldn't clearly. even hear it. What are we doing? Where are we? What are we doing? What is this?
0: Well, we've, uh, it's been a weird time, obviously, to this podcast. We've gotten together a number of times, but uh, it's, it's been spotty recently. At best. At best spotty. What's yeah. below spotty? Intermittent? <laughs> <laughs> uh, barely functioning? Rare, rare, rare. Yeah, so it's been rare where we've been in studio together, but we are now. But today's show is a special show where we're— very special. This is the part where we're in studio, but the rest has been pre-recorded for your enjoyment. So why don't you explain what everyone's about to listen to here? I will. Uh, Mike Tree's walking the podcast where we talk about the important things in life. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Uh, thank you. you, you, you. uh, Philosophy, et cetera, um, current events, old events— Middle size events, uh, lots of events, events spanning the ages. Yes, and we do it from a Christian perspective, um, and our hope is that it, it uh, stirs discussion, it stirs something in you, it causes you to think about your own thoughts, beliefs, notions, mm-hmm. and uh, and and join us on this journey of thinking Together. That's well stated. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. All right, so so what do we got? So we have a very special episode.
1: Um as we've had over the course of this past year, you know, we we, you'll note that we have had a lot of very special episodes where we've kind of taken on, hey, what's what's happening now? And one of the great themes that has emerged for me is seeking really wisdom for living. Okay, in the midst of Everything that's going on. And and folks, we're in the middle of Minneapolis. You know, that was even an episode we did recently where we talked about how I was so annoyed about the, uh, the like riot apologists or like people cheering on the burning down of our city. And it's going, well, it's one thing when you're like, Watching it on television, you know, like it's a form of entertainment. It's another thing when you're living in the midst of it. To go, well, we're sort of, uh, you know, what's the old saying, Mike? May we live in interesting times?
0: Yes, uh, allegedly a Chinese curse. I don't believe that's true, but it, it works.
1: Okay, yes. Yeah. So hundred, you heard it from Mike Nelson, 100% a legitimate Chinese curse. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, uh, so we are living in interesting times. And we're, we're living in Minneapolis at the epicenter of, of so many things that are happening in our country. And so one of them... Right. You know, we, we talked about the George Floyd thing. Well, another one of them is Minneapolis is epicenter, too, of things like the huge increase in murder over the course of this past year. Um, back in the day in the 90s, there was a time when it was coined. I think Time magazine even coined it murderapolis because there was close to 100 murders one year in uh, 95, 96, I believe. It. And so those were the bad old days. And, you know, along with everywhere else, we saw a steady decline to even, I think, 35 or less murders was kind of like the norm. And we saw a big jump in that last year, and it's continued into this year. And that, to me, is very disturbing, very disconcerting. What is happening? What is going on? And, um, you know, we live in the middle of this, so um, what can we do about it? And so, somehow or another, uh, I discovered a book called Bleeding Out – by a, uh, a gentleman named Thomas Apt. It's spelled A-B-T, but pronounced A-P-T. And so, I mean, you know, the modernist...
0: It's very apt. hard to probably do the dear Abt. Apt. Yeah. Apt. you say them fast enough, it's, they're pretty similar.
1: So Thomas Apt wrote this book in 2019 called Bleeding Out, and it was about um, urban violence, basically murder and shooting in urban communities, as a first-order societal problem that required like attention, he's saying this is so important. Um, the the, the amount of uh, murder that we have in um, and he's speaking specifically about urban context, because that's where I think two-thirds of all murders take place. He's saying that that this is a he's like if you were thinking about triage, you know, when you you know, he's like a lot of people talk about basically they talk about. You know, it's problems that we need to solve. It's almost like changing your diet to get better. You know, it's like, yes, but what do you do when the person has a heart attack or the person has a huge gaping gash wound in them? You got to stop the bleeding first. And so he says, you know, really, we have a lot of these long term goals and root cause thinking has that goes back to, I mean, forever, but goes back to the 60s where people have been talking about that. And I've even seen this in online discussions where I had a friend who got shot last year and thank God did not die, but he was trying to stop someone who uh, he thought was like someone got robbed. He ran out because he thought the person was like they were trying to force someone in a car. He ran out and was shot good through. Balance. Yes, was shot. He's managing a pain store. He gets just shot with a gun. You know, trying to be uh, trying to do a good deed, and nothing horrible happened to him. But thank God, I mean, he was shot with a gun. So, like. And I said, this violence in Minneapolis needs to stop. And a comment I got back from someone was like, well, first we need to, you know, like basically saying until we like solve every social problem and inequity, we can't, how could we expect violence to stop? Which I won't go there now into how sort of asinine that take is, especially given the context of what I was reacting to, but whatever. Um, But just to say like that actually like being free from the risk of an elevated risk of murderous mayhem and violence is a foundational aspect of improving all of these other areas. And so until you deal with kind of the triage situation on the ground and create really public safety and public order, like all these other things where you're going to be, you know, spitting in the wind because you're just not going to be able to make the progress when people are living in a place where they're afraid uh, with good reason. And so I just found this book so compelling um, in terms and convicting, in terms of saying, "Well, here I'm living in the midst of this. I want to see uh, greater, you know, uh, equality and 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 social. I want to see inequities done within society. I want to see the flourishing and prospering of everyone. I don't want to see a perpetually disadvantaged class of people in my society. But if a h- huge way to get there is by stopping urban violence, I got to do something about it. And I got to talk to this guy because he you know what he's talking about. So I reached out to him." He very graciously agreed to be interviewed for this podcast. And we talk a lot about, like, pol- I want to just say, by the book, Bleeding Out. It's, it's, it's um, And I was struck from the beginning of it, too, with how one of the first, actually, anecdotes in it is a story of this woman who's a pastor whose son gets shot. And he's, like, not, you know, he's not mixed up in anything. He's mistaken identity. He gets shot. And it's the day after, actually, like, his family had been praying for him and praying for his protection as a young man. And so there's like this human element that grips you from the beginning and her own processing of that as a Christian. And so that, you know, is a part of it is like, there's such a human face. There's such a grave spiritual cost to this. Um, I bring it up in the interview, but like Cain and Abel, that's right away in the Bible, hits you right away. And just the gravity of the taking of human life um, is, is, is foundational in scripture. And then at the end, you know, it's very empirically driven, but at the end, it also has that it's really him, like kind of bearing witness. Even though Thomas himself is not like a, he's not, he has no, he's he's an agnostic. That's how he described himself to me. Um, but the stories almost of people kind of like being transformed, not just criminals, uh, people involved in the perpetration of violence, but those who have been victims of it, like the Christian message of redemption, of forgiveness. Is central to so many of these stories. So it's like the church has a role to play. Um, I think the the, the 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 Christian gospel has such a powerful role to play. In I mean, yeah, you hope preventing people from ever doing this in the first place. But how in a such a broken world? How can we like like how can people move on? I mean, think if you take someone's life, uh, the the cost, the gravity of that, like this sense of that there is redemption, there is forgiveness whilst weighing the gravity of it like that to me it was it jumped off the page just the power of christianity in the midst of these very broken circumstances and well it's a story about you know he's like there's a lot of darkness that's a part of the story of urban balance there's also light that is a part of that too and hope that that's a part of it too and so it just came through for me so i'm thinking okay here's someone who's not christian but there's these christian themes just like rising from this that I can't help but notice. I want to talk to this person because I want to respond faithfully. And I believe that this book has shown me that being being a Christian and being a part of a church has something to actually offer in this. And it would be so useful for our audience to just hear a conversation about this. And so I was like, I'll talk to this guy. He agreed to talk to me. You
0: pull down all the good interviews, man. is great. Just, I... Like You just get in touch with someone and they say yes.
1: People are very... I, I'm astounded, actually, with... I've basically gotten, like, no no's ever. And I'm... And we've talked to some pretty amazing people. And so he's... You'll hear him kind of describe his own uh, credentials here. But um this book, Bleeding Out, is so good. And, and I talk a lot about, kind of, law enforcement and policing as part of it. It's not a book about the police. The police are certainly a part of the solution. um But, like, this is not a book about... This is just very insightful. um And so I'm not going to give, I'm going to make you buy the book if you want to learn everything, but it's very easy to understand, very insightful, and actually shocking when you read it for like, for not a lot of, you can get a lot of juice for not a lot of squeeze, Mm. in the sense of if you focus very intently on the most at-risk people engaged in the most at-risk behaviors in the most at-risk places, which is like this tiny sliver of of any given city, you can get a huge um, return on on. on a like not that big of an investment but he's like there's just not a strong constituency around these issues right now because you're dealing with people living in urban poverty and their their interests don't intersect with any sort of of the dominant narratives and so it's just was such an interesting conversation and so i'm i'm excited to share with you there's one thing that um i bring up a book in there that some people might not be familiar with i because i talk about he's critical of Michelle Alexander's book, mildly critical, but he is critical of it. It, She wrote a book called The New Jim Crow, which has been referred to as, like, it's one of these books that, I think she published it in 2010-2011, Progressive Bible, I believe it's been called, like, it's just one of those books that was read a lot, given out a lot, kind of freshman seminars, and her thesis is that mass incarceration, the phenomenon of mass incarceration, is like, there's this kind of strain of white supremacy that's baked into America from its founding. First it was slavery, then it was Jim Crow. Well, that went away. They had it had to find another expression, and so mass incarceration was that. Um, and his critique, which I would share, is: I mean, one, it's more much more complicated story, the phenomenon of mass incar- incarceration, and number two, um, like it, if you delegitimize the entire American project, why would you ever like favor incremental change versus? revolution i'm an incrementalist and a reformist not a revolutionary and so i'm just putting my cards on the table there folks i don't believe in overthrowing the entire system I, I do believe in reform and change and i think that the existing system is improvable so that is what i'm referring to when i talk to him about michelle alexander and the new Jim crow and if you need to know why this narrative is more complicated read james foreman's locking up our own okay
0: all right give it your best uh, radio voice intro to your own uh, interview with uh, Tom Thomas Thomas
1: Thomas Thomas Abt. Thomas Apt. Hey, folks! Uh, we have a great, provocative interview coming up with a gentleman, a scholar of the first order. Uh, not, not the Star Wars first order, but, but uh, <laughs> I have more on that later in another episode. Uh, but uh, Thomas Apt, he is a uh, he is a learned man. He 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 has much to offer us. So let's listen to it now. Like trees walk. Was that even good? I don't... That's great. Okay, thank you. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another very special episode. We've had a lot of them over the course of this past 15 months. Very special episode of Light Trees Walking. Um, It's my pleasure today. I am joined by a very special guest also uh, by the name of Thomas Apt. Uh, I will let you... I will let him tell you who he is soon, but... um, uh is part of our ongoing kind of series looking at, at wisdom for living how do we live with some of the challenges that we're facing now i want to talk to people that actually know what they're talking about because if you've listened to this podcast enough you know that well i know many things i admit my own ignorance and, and 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 minneapolis is really been an epicenter over the course of this past year about since the murder of george, george floyd about um You know questions about criminal justice and policing, but also then we've seen across the country over the course of this past year uh, a renewed attention on really and I mean almost unprecedented increase in in violent crime, homicide and shootings that were seen to be on on the decrease for a long time. And so through this, I discovered uh, Thomas's uh, Thomas's work on the problem of urban violence. I read his book called Bleeding Out, and so he very graciously agreed to talk to me. So Thomas, that's enough prologue. Who are you? And and why should why am I talking to you? Why should why should we be listening to you about this? What what, what do you know? Uh
2: sure, Pastor Dave. It's a, <laughs> a
1: pleasure
2: to be with you and uh and with your audience. Um I don't know. Uh, why should people listen to me? Uh probably because I've been doing this for a long time and uh and uh have see this uh issue from a, a lot of different angles. Uh what I'm talking about is, uh, broadly speaking, the intersection between uh, reducing violent crime, particularly homicide, uh, criminal justice, and and law enforcement. Uh, I am currently a senior fellow at the Council on Criminal Justice, where I direct the National Commission on COVID-19 and criminal justice. Uh, Before that, I taught at Harvard, before that, I was the head of public safety for New York state reporting directly to governor Cuomo. Before that, I was a senior official in the Obama justice department. And I got my career uh, started. I I started my career uh, as a prosecutor uh, in New York city. And even before that uh, I worked in public school um, in Washington, DC, a very uh, challenging public school where uh, unfortunately one of my favorite students was murdered. So um, maybe that gives you a little bit about, uh, about me. I've seen this issue uh, of, of community violence as a, uh, as a teacher, as a prosecutor, as a researcher, and as a policymaker. So um, that might be why my views on this subject are, are worth listening to.
1: All right, yeah, that you I'm convinced you've you've um, been deeply involved uh in kind of the issues surrounding this for for a long long time and from a in a very various, various different places but also so kind of on the ground but also at a at a at a it sounds like just at a higher kind of policy making level where you get to see I think all of these um Aspects of, of not just the criminal justice system, but of of community organizations and, and, and individuals and systemic issues, all kind of the interplay between those. You've you've seen the you've gotten a broad view, I guess, of of the chessboard. If I were to use that metaphor, and how these pieces are are moving.
2: Yeah, I mean, all levels. Uh, I, I've spent a lot of time um, in direct conversation with uh, current and former uh, gang members. I've spent uh you know time uh at the highest levels of policy making working at the White House. So uh, uh yeah, I've seen I've seen the issue from a variety of perspectives.
1: And so um what brought you to really care about urban urban violence and um you know there's a lot of issues there's a lot of problems in society that people could choose to focus on. Why does this one matter?
2: Um you know everybody comes to things uh uh in their own in their own way uh i uh i i, I was uh pretty shocked by the uh, the murder of of um one of my students while i was working um in uh in dc public schools and uh and then i think my career sort of just uh took me in the direction of criminal justice and uh, I began as a as a line prosecutor, you know, as, uh, uh, prosecuting street crime. Uh, uh, you know, a very sort of sort of gritty uh, experience, uh, um, which was a, a really important thing uh, to do, and I believe deeply in that work. But there were a lot of sort of broader questions that couldn't be answered on sort of a case by case basis, and I found myself asking a lot: sort of, um, how did it come to this? How did this situation that is so tragic that can only be you know ever so partly addressed by my work as a prosecutor uh how did it come to be and so those those questions got me interested in in areas of policy and you know when you're talking about criminal justice and criminal justice policy just the gravitas of homicide uh and of of murder and of understanding this very dark phenomenon uh, uh sort of appealed to me the just the importance of it. I wanted to work on important meaningful things, and you know the converse of the darkness is the light that if you do good work in it, you can actually save lives, and you can really you know it's a it's a wonderful thing to say you know, a few more people are walking around today uh, than otherwise would be as a result of my efforts or the efforts of the people I've, I've worked with. So that's, that's, I think it's very important to uh, always have a, a hopeful side uh, when dealing with these, uh, these uh, difficult issues. And then the other thing I think is, is that the issue of of homicide and violent crime really touches so many things that I think are important and that interest me. Uh, It, you know, to understand this issue, you have to understand sort of effective, targeted, uh, you know, you know, investigation and prosecution and law enforcement. You also have to understand human development. You have to have uh, a real sort of sense of empathy for the uh, young men, and it is mostly young men or younger men uh, who are caught up in this cycle, but you also have to demand accountability. And so it really stretches you intellectually and, um, and personally, and it stretches your your empathy. And I have met and am now quite quite close with many people who I never would have interacted with but for this work. And it's made my life, uh, you know, richer. And, uh, and so I don't know, that was probably a
1: long answer. I I like that because it, 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 it offers, it's a very human entry point. Um, but that also there was, you know, there's something about, I mean, I think the, the, the crime of homicide is so different. Obviously the taking of a human life is, um, I mean, it's the, the one of the most destructive and powerful things someone can do. I mean, uh, you know, speaking as a pastor in the Bible, we don't get very far in, you know, we only have to get to the fourth chapter right before we've got uh, before we've got Cain, um, you know, killing Abel and and God saying, you know, your brother's blood cries out to me uh, from the ground. And so that there's this aspect that um, when human life is taking, it cries out for a response, um, you know, from from the human community, and that actually our our deafness to that, um, I think, is an indictment of our society if we just don't care. Which is, which is something I've seen because we've seen in in my context in in Minneapolis, um, and those who listen to the podcast know. You know, we're a mile and a half from where George Floyd died, um, but we've also seen you know a huge spike in um, in crime in this city, and so uh in in violent crime particularly in murder um which is an un a very very unwelcome um development i mean there's there's dozens more people who are dead today who would not be dead if if previous trends had continued and that troubles me deeply and i think we've seen over the past year kind of two um responses we've seen the the i think um understandable and, and even appropriate you know george floyd uh, dying um in the manner that he did that there was an outcry and i think that that type of killing um that that sort of blood crying out to me from the ground that's the elicits that response when you see it and of course um the valence of it with uh, with you know it being at the hands of an agent of the state and the history of our country like all you know this moment sort of crystallized and coalesced so many things and it, it was imbued with so much meaning while at the same time um I've seen too, like over the past, this past month, um, there's just been so many killings, so many children shot, two of them killed in our city. And there's been a outcry in the community itself, the localized community itself, the the community where those girls are killed, but it's a local story. It's a local issue. And it's one that, you know, if we're talking about um, just in the church world, you know, when George Floyd dies, uh, the national denomination will issue a statement decrying it, with just your run of the mill urban violence that we see, it, it, you know, people of course shake their heads and they go, that's a shame, but it doesn't elicit, um, it doesn't elicit a response, um, to say we, we this cannot stand, we cannot do this in the, in the same way. And so I'm fascinated by the, um, by the, by the different responses to those two situations. I understand it, um, but I also don't think, again, I don't think it's an either or type of a situation. I, I think so much of life is captured in the both. And, and so I'm curious when you look at, cause you published Bleeding Out in 2019, I think, right. So this was but pre, pre George Floyd and, and which, you know, um, I, I mean, I think Floyd kind of w- was an event for so many reasons, but kind of you know, from Trayvon Martin to Ferguson to Freddie Gray, you know, kind of all building to that moment. But then also what we saw then was a reversal of, of trends across the country that had been seen in like a Baltimore or a Chicago where um, I don't think they saw the same spike because they'd already seen it over the last couple of years. So I'm curious, just does your book, does, does what you wrote in bleeding out or how, how does it feel to have then seen? Okay. Here's something you're trying to convince people is a problem in 2019 that maybe felt like people felt like, well, you know, it's kind of gotten better since its peak in the nineties to, to, to now we see this happening. So how do you see your work now in light of what's happened over the course of the past, you know, maybe two years at this point?
2: Sure. A lot to unpack there. So I think the first thing is just to, uh, just to sort of note out loud sort of uh, what the crime trends are so homicide peaked in the united states uh in the um in about 91 or 92 uh and uh you know and homicide uh you know for most of the time uh for most of uh our history homicide and violent crime and other forms of crime have sort of moved in lockstep so i'm going to be mostly talking about homicide here at least historically and you know homicide and violent crime rates then begin sort of a steady march downward, and that march continues for uh, you know uh, until about 2015 or so, and uh, and and then uh, we have uh, the the uh, the killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, all of the social unrest uh that, that caused in, St. in the St. Louis area and around the country. And we see a, a significant spike in homicide uh beginning during that time. That spike uh, um uh sort of abates somewhat uh in the in the following years and then we have uh uh the murder of George Floyd um last year unfortunately uh, we had the largest single spike uh, in homicide rates in uh, since uh, you know modern statistics have been covering this. Uh, that doesn't that that's this while that increase about thirty percent doesn't nearly get us back to where we were in the nineties. So I, I think we need to be careful not to panic um, and not to suggest you know things are just as bad as they were during the you know crack epidemic in the late eighties and early nineties. They're not. Um, but this is a really troubling thing and and the trends have continued, uh, and Minneapolis is no exception, uh, through, uh, this, this year. And I think that the issue here, and you've sort of referenced this, is that, um, the politics of this sort of current environment is all either or, you're either a, uh, an advocate for police and criminal justice reform, or you're a sort of establishmentarian sort of uh, tough on crime, we got to reduce violent crime. And uh, you kind of have to, you know, the way the media and politicians are framing this, unfortunately, far too often, is that you have to pick a side. And you're on one side or the other. And if you Whatever side you choose, you will be accused by the other side of not only being wrong and having the wrong priorities, but as being, um, you know, morally questionable. And 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 so you know, it gets very intense and very personal in today's sort of hyper polarized environment. But I think that the the facts and the evidence and the science all suggest that, as you said, we are living in a both and world. And I think a way to really emphasize this is to center these conversations on the people and places who are most impacted. And it's interesting because many people sort of argue on behalf of people who live in these disadvantaged and disenfranchised communities, but they're often not actually listening to these people. And and those residents um, tend to have much more nuanced views than the advocates who are advocating for them, and so the central thing to understand, uh, and I know this because I've you know uh, looked at the research, but I've also spent countless hours in conversation with uh, with people uh, from these communities, uh, is that they feel this duality. They feel um, over uh, over uh, sort of arrested, over prosecuted, over punished, and simultaneously underprotected. And so they, are, they feel like they are being targeted by the criminal justice system, and yet the criminal justice system is not keeping them safe. And they, deep, they urgently need relief on both fronts. And so we do need to push forward uh, aggressively and proactively with reform to ensure, uh, to address all the racial disparities and economic disparities that are endemic to our criminal justice system but at the same time those people who are being treated unfairly still need that very system and they need it to perform better and so that's sort of that's sort of the uh the sort of crux of the issue is how do we move this from an either or to a both and conversation
1: that i mean resonates with me quite a bit and and i mean bear, and i don't know how much you understand know about what's happening In Minneapolis, you don't live here. But one of the big um, questions, and we have a unique governmental structure here, we actually have a weak mayor system, though the, um, the mayor is in charge of one of the areas where the mayor is strong, the mayor office is strong is in terms of the chief of police um so that's one of the few areas where we do have a the the mayor's political power um is 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 exercised but there's kind of a lot of debate right now about we have a a weird charter too and a weird process of amending our city charter um you know this is part of our glorious federalized system right is there's just a lot of different structures around this country around government and so in Minneapolis there's a lot of debate around not just you know defunding the police or abolishing the police but um, I mean, it is around actually like, are we going to get rid of the police and and create a new thing, a new department of public safety that is, you know, the police 2.0 or whatever it's supposed to be. Um, it, there's not a lot of clarity around that who wouldn't be account- accountable to the mayor, but actually would be accountable then to the 13 city council members. So I'm if I'm describing something like that to you, I mean, what do you see as the the relationship a place like Minneapolis? what would a wise response be you're not telling us to vote one way or another on the charter or anything like that not asking that but you're looking as an outsider we're having this very heated debate between reimagining completely the police department or kind of you know law and order response what's a wise course forward for a city like ours who are experienced one this very tra- traumatic um an awful police killing of a of a of a resident of our city and number two seeing um you know violence proliferating everywhere and there doesn't seem to be a response that's doing anything about it now
2: so i don't think there's any uh easy answer and so i think the first thing to say is you have to be open to um uh more complicated answers to this incredibly difficult question let's just begin with the science you know uh my book is uh based on um a massive body of research that uh a colleague of mine from Harvard and I uh you know spent months and months and months putting together uh and and I should also note when I say my colleague and I I also mean and our graduate students who you know did a lot of the uh you know uh the 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 lay work and and we are great very grateful to them for that um, but we were able to do, perform this systematic meta review, which is basically a review of reviews that basically, so we were able to, in an efficient and somewhat rigorous way, uh, wrap our arms around the findings of more than 1,400 individual impact evaluations of violent, anti-violence strategies. And some common themes emerged. One is that uh, the uh, most successful strategies are typically highly focused on the uh, small numbers of people and places that are at the highest risk for for violence. Another theme, and we should explore this in in more depth later, is legitimacy and fairness. Um, the strategies that are, are are most successful over the long run are perceived to be legitimate by um, impacted individuals and and communities. But an important third and final theme was the theme of balance in that uh, successful anti-violence strategies have to have both enforcement uh, components and prevention components. And to my knowledge, there is no American city that's had uh, sustainable success in reducing crime that hasn't had a bit of both. So we know that you can't arrest your way out of high rates of homicide, but we also know that you can't simply program your way out of this. I mean, and this, is, this goes back to what any parent knows. Um, kids need a balance of incentives. They need punishments and they need rewards. They need more rewards than they do uh, punishment. But adults are no different. And, you know, people who are at risk for violence are no different from other adults. We need the full range of incentives to help change and, mod- and modify behavior. So that's the first thing is that the evidence says that you will not be successful with a one or the other approach. The second, the second thing I think is to understand that, how to, how to put this, that the current situation that we have where the criminal justice system is the provider of last resort for mental health services. It's the provider of last resort for drug addiction. It's the provider of last resort for homelessness issues, all of these other things. That is not the result of aggressive lobbying by the criminal justice system to expand its footprint. That is the result of decades of collective choices to underinvest in various forms of non-enforcement approaches to changing behavior, public service, uh, you know, social services, healthcare, education, all of these other things, and it's very important to understand that the current situation that we have, and this is a hard thing to acknowledge, is we took the easy and cheapest way out. This is the cheapest way to have a measure of social control without spending. On actually improve, uh, you know, improving outcomes, and that is not—that is not a—and that is not a failure of law enforcement. That's a failure, a collective political failure to fund these other things. And so, my issue here is, it's not enough to defund. And before we defund, we need to scale up these other things, and much more significantly than we could do by just defunding. And so I think that that's a really important thing um, is that when, when we talk about sort of, you know, uh, you know, re-envisioning law enforcement, we're not talking about re law enforcement, really. We're talking about reenvisioning society where law enforcement doesn't need to play as long a role. If you pull back law enforcement significantly without, uh, without a lot of planning, as we abruptly did in response to the uh, unrest generated by the brutal murder of George Floyd, you will see violence and you will see chaos, just like we have in Minneapolis and all around the country. If we're gonna have a broader conversation about reducing the role of law enforcement, that's a good conversation to have, a healthy conversation to have, and I welcome it. But it, it it's less about defunding police and more about funding all of the things that ultimately produce crime and social dysfunction.
1: And so um, I wanna pick up on something you said about police legitimacy. And a question I have that is just, uh, it's one asked a little bit out of despair is, how do you get legitimate? How does the police department get legitimacy back when there's been an event that has occurred that has seemed fair or not, um, uh, has seemed to call into question the legitimacy of the entire enterprise? And picks up on something um, you're not like sharply critical of Michelle Alexander in your book, but you, you do say that like, it, it seems to enforce or play into a narrative that like, no, this is what the police are. This is what they do. They exist to subjugate racial and ethnic minorities. The whole point of it is to reinforce white supremacy, to subjugate racial and ethnic minorities. And you don't watch the, watch that video. That's all you need to see how can police be legitimate within a context where that is a dominant narrative at least in one half of the poli- or a not the dominant narrative but a but a influential narrative in in at least one half of our political discourse
2: right i think it's i think it's a really good question and you know uh i struggle with uh the impact of michelle alexander's uh work because uh, it was so profoundly important on so many levels and called out so many deep problems. But there is sort of some line somewhere that if you cross it, uh, it becomes much more difficult to have reasonable policy discussions. It's one thing to say, and I think we should all need to acknowledge this, that the criminal justice system, like the educational system, like the health system, is infected with racial bias, and racial disparities, and that that urgently needs attending to. But if you say that the purpose, the fundamental purpose of these systems is to create and maintain these disparities, it's really hard to, if you, and if you believe that, then why would you engage in, in sort of incremental improvements? You would say, tear it down. And I would say that if, if that's what I if that's if that's what I believe. But I think unfortunately, in a country with a long history of, of racial uh, of racial persecution, everything has elements of this. And unwinding that is a is an extremely complex business. And it's not the fault of just one system. And you can't just, you know, you can't just defund or abolish these critical government functions. Because they are uh, because they are part and parcel of this history that we have. The same thing is true of abolish ICE. I'm deeply opposed to what uh, I, the, to many of the policies and and things that ICE did in the previous administration. I think many of them were deeply immoral and frankly un-American. Um, however, there has to be an immigration function in the United States and. For people who, and there, ha, and there has to be an enforcement component of that function. And so I think that we, I think that we have to avoid absolutism. And so, you know, when I, and that's so, that's why I say when people say defund the police, if they are saying that as a way to be bold and provocative about, you know, pushing for real substantive change, I think that's a worthwhile conversation. But if they are literally saying no more police, no more prosecutors, no more prisons, and we'll figure out what we're gonna do in, in, the, in the meantime, uh, you know, and we'll do that first and then we'll figure out everything else, I'm opposed to that. I am not an abolitionist. And I think that the people who would be hurt most by that, again, would be these people in these disadvantaged communities themselves. And if we're really centering them we have to get past these, you know, advocacy partisan talking points. Um, and it's not, and I also just want to point out, I, I'm, you know, you could you, you could take what I'm saying to be sort of uh critical of the progressive side of this, and, and there is some room for criticism, but there's also a bunch of establishmentarians led, I think, most uh most mostly uh most most powerfully by police unions who are basically saying um you know, there should be, we should maintain the status quo. And if you criticize the status quo, you are essentially promoting law, lawlessness. And uh, I think that is wrong as well. And so, again, we have to find the sensible center here.
1: Yeah, that there's a vested uh, that people have vested interests in 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 what's happening um seems important to take stock of and again um getting people as a part of a both end uh, conversation to sort of leave a defensive posture even too um w- w- which we've seen and so we've talked a lot about policing because it's so central to what's happened in Minneapolis and i think has happened in this conversation since your book was published that that's become an even more pressing component of it, police legitimacy, because, you know, you, you write your book. I I just think it unleashed a whole new um, sense of, Hey, like we need the police to be a part of this. And this was like, well, how, (laughs) you know, I, I think that's what 2020 raised was, was even greater those questions of legitimacy, but it's not just police are a part of responding to violence, but they're not the only part by, and that's not what your book is about by any stretch of the imagination is, you know, uh, just what do cops need to do um, at all? And so I don't want to leave that impression with people, but it, it, talking to you because you know about it and where I am is so interesting. But I'm well, interested... Oh, yeah, yes, go, go.
2: Well, I think the, the difficult thing is is that my view is that uh, you know law enforcement is part of the solution when it comes to reducing violence, but only part of the solution, that we need enforcement and non-enforcement solutions. But even to going further that, than that, which is hard to say out loud today is we need those two groups to be coordinating and collaborating and working together, which is a really difficult thing to do these days.
1: Yeah, it, it is. It, it It is. And I'm not sure to what degree it's happening. And and so here's a question I have, though, to to bring it back around. This is, you know, this is I'm trying to think, how do I respond within my congregation, my context as a as a as a, as a leader in the church and, and as a pastor? And so you've been at this for a long time. And so I'm interested to see in your decades of experience, where have you seen the role of the church in faith-based organizations in the, in reducing violence, in, in tackling this problem um, of urban violence?
2: So uh, I think it's, I think it's difficult to talk about the role of faith-based organizations uh, without sort of acknowledging uh, the, the role of race. And so uh the, the the prime movers in this area have been um African American clergy whose congregations are often located in these areas. And those those leaders have a really um important moral authority that they can lend selectively to the right efforts, and they are one of the few organizations that uh, really can sort of be key in sort of mending fences and building bridges through their appeal to these universal values, which are also Christian values, uh, although not all of these clergy are, are, are Christian, which should, we should point out. Um, uh, and so they can be, you know, tremendous build, uh, uh, bridge builders. And I would also say that uh, the power of religion, although I would say there's not good social science on this, um, can be transformative in the lives of people who have been um, involved in crime and violence. Uh, It's interesting. I talk about it in my book in that, um, you know, I I spend most of my time talking about the numbers and the data and the, the science of violence reduction. And I think it's important to be very empirical about but I have, you know, dozens of friends who uh, turned their lives around, and some of them were involved in, you know, very—they went to very dark places. Let's just put it that way. And many of them say the power of religion, uh, you know, was instrumental in changing their lives. And so I think we have to—I think we have to acknowledge that in this in this space that you know the power of religion. Uh, to, to, uh, to transform people and to transform politics is amazing. And I want to say something that's, and you know, so that I said that that's sort of centered around African American clergy, but one of the sort of really hopeful things I've been seeing these little green shoots around the country is these, uh, is these coalitions, these clergy coalitions where people build on their faith and values. And you see sort of, Predominantly white congregations engaging with con- uh predominantly black congregations and, and really learning about each other. And some of these predominantly white uh congregations start starting to leverage their influence and resources on behalf of their fellow, you know, uh Christian or their fellow man. That's really exciting to see that. And I think that's a a, a conversation that I, I hope continues.
1: As do I. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's one of the uh, you have a whole chapter in your book about uh, redemption and recovery. um, I believe it's called, we're just sharing some of these stories and almost invariably um, there's a, there's a, there's a religious component. There's a spiritual component to people transforming their lives and changing their lives. And especially people who have been involved in, in violence on either end. I mean um, if you've perpetrated violence, how do you one find absolution and, and forgiveness to go on and purpose after you've committed, you know, what many would say is the most heinous crime. Or if you've been the victim, you have a family member who you love who's been taken away from you. Um, How do you, how do you forgive? I mean, there's just a very affecting story at the beginning. I forget. It. Her last name is Odom. Is it Kim Odom or Kim Odom? Yeah. And you know, she is, her son is murdered, you know, the day after, uh, you know, they had had him in this, the middle of this prayer circle and they were asking God's protection, you know, over him and, and, and reciting the words of the Psalms, you know, that, uh, that no evil will come against me, you know, no plague will touch this house. And then she says, and the plague got him. And you think about the next day and what a profound theological crisis that is, um, and, and, and challenge to one's faith and one's belief in God. And yet, um, you know, her, uh, uh, her response to that is to become even more deeply involved in, in the work against violence and that her faith, well, it hasn't, it it, it can't stay the same. I think after you see something like that, changes in a really profound way. And so I thought that was just an incredibly affecting story to have. Yeah. yeah. And Kim was a
2: past is, uh, was, and, and remains a pastor herself. And uh, no, her faith was, was deeply shaken, but she, you know, but she found uh, a, a way uh, to, to, remain, to
1: remain free. And so my last question for you, and I know we're, we're, we're almost done here, um, but I want to ask this. So you're talking, you know, you're talking to me, I'm a, you know, white pastor in, in a, in, in a city that has a problem with urban violence. I think that's undeniable. What should someone like what you are talking to me, you're saying, Dave, this is my advice to you. This is what you, should do. I know, you know, sometimes we want to avoid shoulds and telling people what they're supposed to do, but I'm giving you permission to tell me what I should do or make some suggestions for someone like me or people in my kind of congregational context. What, what can we do to respond so that we can protect and preserve life as the basis for, I think, an even greater human flourishing? If we're able to stop violence, we can open up so many new avenues to people prospering in ways that they can't while, while violence is raging.
2: I think it's a great question and, and and I would urge urge you and and your congregants uh to you know to reach out to uh to to reach out to other congregations that are uh you know directly impacted by this issue and offer your you know love and support and empathy and really begin by listening and 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 from there, you know, educate yourself and, and get yourself in, informed. But I think it's also really important to be willing to go to that. And what I mean is to be willing to physically visit these places, to, to uh, engage with people in their own communities, on their own turf. I think that often people who are are privileged are are quicker to open up their own environments to others than they are to visit and, and be in the uncomfortable situation of being in someone else's environment. But I think that that's really important. And the other thing I would say is um, just do the work, just get involved and just start uh, contributing. It's, you know, we are not going to uh, come to Uh, some kumbaya uh, conclusion to these massive questions. Everything that I've learned is that these problems are solved from the inside out, not from the outside in. Um, You know, the uh, many of the, uh, I have seen, I I know, um, you know, uh, former gang members and gang unit law enforcement officers who are best friends now. Um, And they used to literally, chase each other around a decade before. And when they started working together on this issue of urban violence, they didn't have a kumbaya moment. They didn't like each other. They didn't trust each other. They didn't know each other. But all they had was this common commitment that their differences were not as important as saving lives. And over time, they learned about each other. They learned to trust each other. It's It's an incremental process and so for me just make it about the work don't make it about you don't make it about the issues just make it about the work
1: that's a great place to leave it and and the work being as you said the work is saving lives that's 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 what this is about is is less people dying so we have more people walking around um and and it's really about i mean this gets talked you know the sanctity of human life in that sense um which i know is a value that gets talked a lot about Um, in the area, the space of law enforcement, right? Is they're supposed to talk about the sanctity of human life in in terms of protecting and preserving that. And so um, the church certainly has a role uh, to play in that. And that plays into uh, our deepest values um, as well. So I appreciate, Thomas, you giving me this time um, and your perspective. There's so many other things I want to ask you, but you know, this is enough. This is more than enough to chew on for an episode. So thank you so much um, for your time. I really appreciate it.
2: Well, thank you, Pastor David, and uh, thanks to your audience for uh, listening uh, on this very important subject.
1: All right. Well, keep up, keep up the good work.